Hello everyone, this is Sam of Historian Explaining. These lectures are on SoundCloud, YouTube, Stitcher, and other platforms. And if you can help to keep them coming, please go to the Patreon page. The link is in the description. Become a supporter at any level. And if you've been listening frequently, you might know I've been jumping around among several different topics recently, basically gradually working towards a discussion of the colonization of America, which is the era that I studied in my own research. But at this point, I want to go back a bit and pick up a thread of British history that I left off, which of course forms one of the important backgrounds to American colonial history. And you might remember in my discussion of the Vikings and Anglo-Saxon England, I left off at 1066, at the beginning of that very pivotal year. 1066 is the most famous sort of red-letter date in English history, which English school children always have to learn, sort of like 1776 in the United States. And it's often seen as the beginning of a new age, sort of ushering in a new culture, a new civilization into England and creating the kind of feudal England of the high and late Middle Ages and leading the way for England to become a major power, which is how we think of it now in the modern era. So that's often how people think of it as this beginning point, almost a kind of founding point. But really what I want to explain here is that it was really also the end of an era. It was the culmination of a long struggle for control of England between initially two and then more than two contending camps. And so it's really just as important to understand it as the result of a long age of conflict. And what I want to explain is that very complex background that led up to the Norman conquest and the particular events that unfolded in the year 1066, because there actually was more that happened in that very tumultuous and cataclysmic year than just the Norman Conquest. And in fact, at any point prior to the pivotal Battle of Hastings, any number of possible outcomes were on the table. It was not just a clear, inevitable through line towards the Norman takeover. In the entire, really through the whole 11th century, leading up to and after the Norman Conquest, England was an increasingly prosperous country. It was a country with an increasingly sophisticated infrastructure and administration by the standards of medieval Europe. But it also was politically unstable, and the succession was very uncertain. So this political instability attracted the attention and ambition of various parties around Europe and various rulers. As I said, it ended with this cataclysmic year that finally resolved this centuries-long struggle and put an end, at least for the time being, to this age of tumult and international conflict around England. And I think that 1066, in this way, it really serves as an important demonstration of the fact that history is highly unpredictable, that it can hinge even deep sea changes that affect the workings and institutions and customs of a society 
can result from very quick and unpredictable events, from things that seem, as historians say, contingent, just kind of accidental, and also that individual personalities and individual choices can be the hinge affecting whole societies of millions of people for centuries. And it shows why I think it's a fool's errand to try to impose some simple developmental scheme to explain how history happens when there is so much contingency and so much individual choice that can have these deep effects. So I'll explain the political events and forces that led the way to the Norman invasion in the autumn of 1066, and I'll explain some of the events of the year itself. So what was this long struggle for England, and how did it work, and who were the players? Well, you might know a little bit about this if you heard my lecture last year from several months ago about Anglo-Saxon England and the Vikings, which covered from the 8th century up until 1066. And there were two main contending camps in this long-running, centuries-long feud for control of the country. And we can roughly call them, although these were not always the terms used at the time, the terms might change, but roughly we can call them the Anglo-Saxon camp and the Norse camp, who also were sometimes more specifically called Danes or Danish. So the Anglo-Saxons and the Norse. The Anglo-Saxons were a society, a population that occupied large parts of Britain that began with migrations from the European continent, the areas mainly of what's now Germany and the Netherlands, into Britain in the Dark Ages. So in those centuries in the 400s and 500s after the Roman withdrawal, the various camps, tribes, small kingdoms around southern Britain were gradually unified under the leadership of Alfred the Great and his successors like Edward and Edgar. And they unified largely in response to the new threat of Viking invasions coming from Scandinavia. And their main base of power, the Anglo-Saxons' base of power, was mostly in the western part of Britain. And particularly the main power center was in Wessex, a long-standing Saxon kingdom in the southwestern part of Britain that held out most effectively against the Vikings. So on the other side were the Norse or the Danish, who established themselves in Britain as a competing power, beginning with Viking attacks and raids that then paved the way for gradual colonization in the east. And their main base of power in the eastern part of Britain was called the Dane Law, basically the area where Danish law held sway. So for centuries, this was really a geographic and territorial struggle between a gradually unifying Anglo-Saxon kingdom in the West and the Dane law in the East. And various areas like Essex, Northumbria, Kent might be fought over and traded back and forth between these two jurisdictions. Well, after 1000 or so, the Kingdom of England became more integrated and more unified. And this the power struggle between the Anglo-Saxon and Danish camps changed. It changed from a territorial struggle to instead a dynastic struggle. So rather than seeing wars between, say, Wessex and its allies and the Danelaw, instead it became a dynastic feud between the House of Wessex 
and the Danish dynasty over who would rule this consolidated kingdom of England. And the transition, it seems, happened partly due to the long rule of an Anglo-Saxon king named Ethelred, who in Chronicles has also been called Ethelred the Unready, although that's really a mistranslation. It really, his title actually meant more like Ethelred the Ill-Advised. And he was on the English throne as an Anglo-Saxon ruler from 978 to 1016. So this was an exceptionally long reign for an Anglo-Saxon king. And in fairness, Ethelred, although we call him Ethelred the Unready, he was not as totally incompetent as he has been portrayed. And Ethelred, in fact, did make some good decisions and took some good policy courses. But he was also erratic, sometimes took bad advice, and he could be overly brutal and repressive towards the people under his authority. For instance, at one point, he issued an order to kill all the Danes in England, which was unrealistic and unwise, apart from the ethical question of killing a whole civilian population. But despite all of his flaws and his shortcomings, Ethelred was able to hold on to the Anglo-Saxon territory and keep the Danes largely contained in the east, which then allowed for an increasing consolidation and even some degree of prosperity in the English kingdom under his rule. The practice of trade and civil administration and church administration under his rule was generally pretty good, but he was very unpopular and obviously had a a bad reputation because of his oppressiveness, his erratic and changing judgment, and his blunders, especially in war. Because of these blunders and because of his brutal style of rulership, when he finally died in 1016, in the midst of another war with the Danes centering around London, the leading powers in England opted to switch dynasties. And instead, the councils and ruling bodies around the various provinces around Britain basically agreed in declaring the Danish ruler Knut as king of England. So this was the first time that instead of you know, trying to f- contend over the exact boundaries of Danish versus Anglo-Saxon control, instead there was a kind of unanimity around one ruler who was Norse, not Anglo-Saxon. And this might sound like a strange development. How could this be legitimate? But this could happen in Anglo-Saxon England because the royal succession was ambiguous and flexible. It did not follow a simple rule of primogeniture like we tend to think of today, where simply the eldest son or the eldest heir automatically replaces the previous king. Instead, any time that a king died or abdicated or was overthrown, for that matter, the successor was ultimately chosen by a council, ideally by a single council called the Witten, which was just the sort of gathering of the leading nobles, warlords. It might also include churchmen, princes who are part of the royal family, and so forth. And this Witten could decide. They could choose who the next king would be. And they might weigh a number of different factors 
in this decision. For instance, does this next claimant that we might choose, do they have royal blood? Do they have a direct family relationship to the previous king? Are they seen as competent and mature and would make a good ruler? Do they have governing or war experience? And do they have broad support among the elite factions of society or among the populace or from the church, which of course had tremendous prestige and influence in medieval England? So all of these factors might come into play when the Witten decides who should be the successor. And in 1016, when so many people were so tired and disillusioned with Ethelred's rule, and they did not see a good, desirable successor within that dynasty coming from the Wessex line, instead, they pretty quickly opted for Knut. So Knut, this Danish ruler who previously had been, had only had power over the Dane law, He is proclaimed king of England, and he rules from 1016 to 1035, so that's another pretty long rule. Knut had already been previously recognized as the king of both Denmark and Norway, as well as having control over the Danelaw in Britain, and he also claimed part of Sweden. So when he was referred to in formal pronouncements, he might be called King of All England, as well as Denmark, Norway, and part of Sweden. So he ruled over what historians have called a massive North Sea Empire, which was very impressive and could command tremendous resources, These all these countries surrounding the entire North Sea. But this empire was also very difficult to govern, communication and travel across the sea in the 11th century was slow and dangerous. And Knut was able to manage these different domains fairly competently, usually, of course, ruling indirectly through local magnates, viceroys, royal relatives, and so on. And England developed many close trade and political connections with Scandinavia. So in a way, you could see it being drawn into a kind of Scandinavian North Sea sphere. But nonetheless, there was still much resentment against Danish rule among certain parties of the upper classes in England who would have rather seen a continuing Anglo-Saxon dynasty instead of Danish rule. So a sort of oppositional Anglo-Saxon camp forms within the local aristocracy in England, led particularly by a magnate named Godwin. And we don't know a lot about Godwin or his early life, but we know that he was either named or formally recognized as Earl of Wessex during Knut's rule. So remember, Wessex is the traditional core center of Anglo-Saxon power. It's where the Ethelred's dynasty had originally come from. It had been Alfred the Great's kingdom, and it continued to be the really richest and most productive zone of England. 
So he stepped forth as an important, powerful magnate and leader of the kind of Anglo-Saxon oppositional camp as Earl of Wessex. He then continued to build up his domains and his various rights and titles over territories all around England, and he built up a powerful family where most of his sons also gained earldoms, giving them rights and powers to raise armies or command knights or raise tax money and rents from different zones of England. So the rise of Godwin's family as this important power base within England really made Canute's massive empire even more ungovernable by the time he eventually died. So really, the political situation in this North Sea empire was already very unstable, even despite Canute's fairly long and competent reign. And at Canute's death in 1035, it's possible that the situation could have easily just collapsed back into a territorial split and warfare, but it didn't. Something held the situation together at least enough to maintain stability within England. And what was this third element? So outside of the two contending camps, you could say, around the Anglo-Saxons and the Danes, this other third element was Normandy. And it was Norman influence that really helped to mediate between the two sides and maintain some sort of unity, but only temporarily, not forever. So why is Normandy important, and how did it come into play? Well, Normandy was just a term for a large region of northwestern France on the English Channel, close to England, that, like the Danelaw in Britain, had also been raided and attacked and eventually colonized by Vikings. The French crown in the early 900s had made peace with these Vikings and basically granted them control as really the effective rulers over this zone of Normandy if in return they agreed to stop raiding and attacking, stay within their province, and convert to Christianity, which was taken as the marker of becoming civilized and peaceful. So Normandy was still technically part of France, but it was really, for all intents and purposes, like an independent kingdom ruled by a succession of warlords who could also be called by the formal Latin term dukes sometimes. And so often when we talk about their leaders and rulers, we refer to them as the Duke of Normandy. But that was not really a formalized title. It was just sort of a way of saying, you know, head Norman in charge. And they had become somewhat assimilated. They spoke a form of French, a sort of Norse-inflected version of French. They were Christian, but they kept a lot of the militaristic customs and practices of the Norse, a lot like the Danes in the Dane law in Britain. So Normandy came into play because in the 900s, once the Normans had sort of established themselves as this autonomous power within France. The Vikings, when they came and raided and repeatedly attacked and invaded England along the eastern and southern coast, many of them would stop over in Normandy and use Norman harbors in order to supply and stay safe before then going on and raiding and attacking 
Britain. And it's not surprising that they did this because there was this affinity. The Normans, too, were descendants of Viking colonizers or Norsemen, hence the name Norman. And it was a rich and powerful province. And basically, Ethelred, who is, as I said, the Anglo-Saxon king in this time, who is constantly feuding and contending and fighting and fleeing back and forth with the Vikings, Ethelred sees the crucial importance of Normandy, and he decides that in order to stem this tide of Viking attacks, he has to bring Normandy over to his side. So this is one of the wiser strategic moves that Ethelred actually made. So in the year 1002, he negotiated an alliance with the Normans, which then was sealed by his marriage to Emma of Normandy, who was the sister of the so-called Duke of Normandy at that time. So the, the kind of ruler or chieftain of Normandy was called Richard or Richard the Good. And his sister Emma married King Ethelred. And in marrying Emma, Ethelred actually tossed aside his previously existing Anglo-Saxon wife, which was a not entirely unique thing for rulers to do in the early Middle Ages, when sort of the rules of marriage and the powers of the church were still fuzzy and ambiguous. Kings could just kind of put a wife aside and say, I need to make this marital alliance with someone who's bringing more political power, diplomatic importance to the table, and they could basically get away with it. So that's what Ethelred did here with Emma. Emma was proclaimed as Queen of England, and she became really the crucial linchpin of it all, in a sense. She's the one who built the close relationship among the Normans, the Anglo-Saxons, and eventually the Danes. And so whether wittingly or unwittingly, she actually paved the way for the eventual Norman takeover of England. So how did that happen? Well, in her marriage with Ethelred, Emma had two sons. So as we say now, an heir and a spare. And those two sons were named Edward and Alfred. And Alfred was much admired as a prince. He was sometimes called Alfred the Noble. They were still fairly young at the time when Ethelred died and Knut took over the throne. And when Knut took up the crown in England, he knew that there were many possible challengers and bases of opposition to his power. And he set about killing many possible rivals from both the Danish and Anglo-Saxon royal families. This, of course, put Edward and Alfred in great danger. They fled to Normandy, where they had relations and allies from their mother's side, and they spent most of their youth and were largely brought up then in Normandy, while Knut was on the throne in England. And Emma saw that this was a dangerous situation, right? that her sons were not able to set foot safely in England, they had to be exiles, basically, in Normandy, and that Normandy itself could continue to be in danger if they were seen as a threat to Knut. So Emma basically approached Knut and proposed marriage, and Emma of Normandy and Knut were then married in 1017. And incidentally, Knut also had a previous Anglo-Saxon wife from England, whom he likewise threw over in favor of this more advantageous marriage to Emma. 
And why would Knut want to marry her? Well, several reasons, probably. One is that he saw the advantage in bolstering his own legitimacy as king of England if he could have the same wife as the previous Anglo-Saxon king. And it, again, just like for Ethelred, it could help Knut to manage relations and cement a positive relationship with Normandy. So as Knut kills off his rivals, including many members of this Wessex dynasty, he spared Edward and Alfred and basically allowed them to live safely for the time being in Normandy. So this was probably the main advantage, of course, for Emma, that if she created this alliance by marriage to Knut and made Edward and Alfred Knut's stepsons, that would help to protect them. Now, Emma, this was not however, purely just a political and diplomatic marriage. It seems from accounts from the time that Emma and Knut actually were very close and had an an intimate marriage, and they also had several children, and among those children was a son called Hardeknut. So by 1035, by the time that Knut dies, we now have two competing dynasties, each of which could plausibly claim to be the legitimate rulers of England, each of which had living male heirs, and those living male heirs were one another's half-brothers. They were related through Emma of Normandy. And all of these sons, Edward and Alfred on the Anglo-Saxon side and Hardeknut on the Norse side, had all been largely raised by their mother, Emma of Normandy, and were very influenced by her. And in each of these cases, Emma had been the second wife of the respective husband, following some other previous wife who gave birth to other children who maybe could also possibly be competing claimants to the throne. So you have a very complicated situation with many half-siblings, but the main strongest and best supported claimants to the throne are these half-brothers who are all children of Emma of Normandy. So Knut dies in 1035, and it seems that he wanted the throne to pass to his 17-year-old son, Harda Knut, who, as I mentioned, was the son of Knut and Emma. But Harda Knut was very young, he was only 17, And he had a very hard time managing this complex empire of multiple kingdoms, this North Sea Empire that had been assembled by Knut. And already, even before Knut died, Harda Knut was in Denmark trying to deal with opposition and rebellions and challenges to his rule, both in Denmark and in Norway. So although... His supporters consider him to inherit the throne and proclaim him as king of England. He is totally occupied in Denmark, and he leaves England under the rulership of his mother, Emma, as regent. Now, this situation, you might imagine, is not entirely acceptable to all parties. There are, as I said, other claimants, and in fact, power was seized by Harda Knut's half-brother, so another older son of Knut and his previous wife, who was called Harold Harefoot. So there's a power contest for several years between Harold Harefoot, this other Danish claimant, and Emma of Normandy, who's trying to maintain control of the country on behalf of Harda Knut. 
And during this period of contention and ambiguity, Edward and Alfred, right, the other sons, the the Anglo-Saxon sons over who have taken refuge in Normandy, they come over to England to visit, perhaps unwisely. They may think that now that Emma is in control as regent, that they can now come over to England, find supporters and allies, maybe try to put themselves forward as leaders of the country. And they end up being arrested, apparently on the orders of Earl Godwin. Although Godwin, as I said, was a main Anglo-Saxon leader, for whatever reason, he and his henchmen take Edward and Alfred prisoner. They end up torturing and killing Alfred, but Edward escapes. So whatever this visit was about, whether maybe it was just to see their mother, maybe it had some political purpose, it ends in disaster and Edward has to flee back to Normandy. And of course, meanwhile, this power struggle between Emma and Harold Harefoot continues. Eventually, Harold Harefoot persuades the Witten to proclaim him as king, so he takes up the throne for a few years, while Hardicanute is still distracted and occupied trying to quell resistance in Denmark and Norway. So things have devolved into quite a mess. And Hardicanute over in Scandinavia, he is able to basically tamp down resistance and assert himself as ruler of Denmark. But in Norway, he loses control. He loses control of the country to a local Norwegian potentate called Magnus, who puts himself forward as king of Norway. And Magnus and Hardicanute make a negotiated peace. So basically, for, for all intents and purposes, Hardicanute gives up his claim to Norway. He is still king of Denmark. And finally, in 1040, so after several years of this kind of chaos, Harold Harefoot dies, and Hardicanute is able to return to England and finally take up the throne. And Hardicanute consolidates power together in cooperation with Emma, with his mother Emma of Normandy. Edward is able finally to return to England. He's safely able to voyage from Normandy back to England, and he is welcomed and lives safely at court, probably largely because of the influence of his mother, Emma, who is also the mother of King Hardicanute. And Edward even goes so far as to take up co-rulership with Hardicanute, which, as it happens, is sort of a Norse custom that a king, while he's ruling, might allow his heir apparent, like his son or brother or nephew, to kind of take up a co-ruling, co-king position with him. So for two years, Hardicanute and Edward sort of rule jointly, and this opens up the possibility then of a possible peaceful transition back to the Anglo-Saxon House of Wessex, which maybe will resolve this ongoing power struggle and contention between Anglo-Saxons and Danes. And this idea, of course, is strongly supported by the Godwin family and this Anglo-Saxon party who want to see a transition back to the dynasty for whom they feel more of an affinity. So in 1042, Hardicanute dies and Edward takes up the throne as sole ruler. He's proclaimed king of England. And this is, of course, welcomed by the Godwins and by others tied to the Anglo-Saxon cause. But 
in governing, Edward brings in a lot of Norman advisors and administrators. That's largely where he had grown up, and his main, most familiar language was Norman French. That was sort of the his friends, his allies were largely Norman. And so he brings them in and appoints many of them to important, powerful positions. And the court that he assembles at Westminster around this new palace complex at Westminster, they are largely Norman. This, of course, angers the Anglo-Saxon party, including Godwin and his allies, who feel that they have been there in Edward's corner trying to get an Anglo-Saxon restoration, and now they're being sidelined and excluded in favor of these Norman foreigners. So during Edward's reign, a kind of new factionalism emerges between what you might call sort of a court party and a country party a court party that is largely Norman-dominated and centers on Edward, and a country party of largely Anglo-Saxon magnates, potentates, minor nobles, warlords, who resent this Norman court. And Edward recognizes that he has to do something to placate Godwin and his family. And so what he does is he gives out even more earldoms over various peripheral territories around the country, places like, for instance, Northumbria in the north. And also in 1045, he makes a strategic political marriage. He marries Edith, who is a daughter of Godwin, and hence also a sister of these various Godwin sons who are being given major earldoms and major territories around England. And the hope, of course, is that through this marriage, an heir might be produced who can succeed Edward, who will then combine the House of Wessex with the Godwin family. And you will have this sort of powerful potentate family in England that has become kind of the de facto ruling family, that they will be able to then formally take up the throne and become the ruling dynasty through Edith. So it was a very delicate political situation for Edward to manage, and he did make these important steps in the 1040s, and maybe for a few years things seemed to be getting on okay. But it seems Godwin was a very difficult person to manage, his ambitions, his sense of his importance, and further feuds between Edward and the Godwin family escalated in the later 1040s, and eventually an open rebellion broke out in 1049 to 52. And because of this rebellion, the Godwins were temporarily exiled from England. And during this feud, and during this, this open fight between the royal court and the Godwins, Edward, it seems, held a meeting in 1051 with the new young leader of Normandy, who was named William. And we don't know the contents of this meeting, which took place in England, but it probably involved some negotiations about maintaining the diplomatic alliance between England and Normandy. Now, Normans in later years would claim that at this meeting, Edward told William that William should be his successor to the English throne. And we don't know if this is true. It was not attested by any records surviving 
from the time, but it's certainly possible, right? This was a moment when Edward was actually at war with the Godwins, and his wife, Edith, was a daughter of Godwin, and he may have thought, you know, I don't want the throne to pass into that family and that line. I'd rather that it shift over to William and this ducal dynasty of Normandy. Why would William even be a possibility? Well, aside from Normandy's great importance, political importance, also they were related. So William was a great nephew of Emma of Normandy, and hence he was a cousin once removed of Edward. Now, they were not related through the male line. William was not descended from any English kings, but there was a family blood relationship through the Emma of Normandy maternal line. And so, you know, that could make, according to the standards of the time, that could make William a plausible possibility as a successor. But anyway, we don't know exactly what went on in this 1051 meeting. But William, as I said, he was the grandson of Richard the Good. So he was hence a great nephew of Emma and a cousin once removed of Edward. And he was known as a formidable leader and fighter, very much in the militaristic tradition of Normandy. But his position was also insecure. And it seems that this affected his thinking and behavior. So while he was known as a formidable warrior and he was strongly supported by the knights, the sort of noble cavalry of Normandy, he was also a bastard, the term used at that time for an illegitimate son born out of wedlock. So his father was a Duke of Normandy and his mother was the Duke's mistress. And it seems that this fact of his birth was a problem for him and for his authority. And there are stories, for instance, that at one point a rebelling village that revolted against the high taxes in Normandy, the leaders of this village marched out beating animal skins like drums. And this was a way of mocking William because William's mother had been the daughter of a tanner. So they were sort of making fun of him for coming from a dynasty of tanners. And so William had this revolt crushed, and he had all of these men's hands and feet cut off as sort of a warning. So he was a strong and formidable leader, sometimes brutal, and animated to some degree, it seems, by insecurity in himself and his identity. And so naturally, it was very important for Edward to keep someone like this on his side and avoid any conflict with William. Meanwhile, of course, Edward has to somehow manage, has to placate this Godwin-led opposition within England and manage his own domestic power bases. And in 1052, the Godwin family crossed over and came back into England, ready for maybe a confrontation with Edward. And it happened that the Witten assembled to adjudicate this dispute, this feud, and they found in favor of Godwin, and Edward backed down. And he made a peace agreement to give out even more lands to the Godwin family. And in 1053, the following year, Godwin himself died, and his son, who was called Harold Godwinson, replaced him and was proclaimed as Earl of Wessex. And Harold was much younger, of course. He was 
energetic. He was a brother-in-law of the king through Edward's marriage to Edith. And it seems that Harold had better and somewhat more harmonious relations with Edward. They were able to find common ground, maybe being of the same generation. They found common ground and were able to coexist cooperatively better than Edward and Godwin had. Harold was a very good fighter, and he basically did a lot of the dirty work on behalf of the mostly peaceful King Edward. For instance, Harold carried out a series of small wars against the Welsh over territory along the Severn River, and he was able to establish an English foothold in Wales. He even built a hunting lodge for himself at the Welsh town of Port Skewit to sort of symbolize English power. And he was much admired as effective. He became, you could say, the, a power behind the throne, but in a somewhat different way. So the, the Godwin son brothers controlled much of the country, and they carried out military operations, while civil administration was very much in the hands of Edward and his courtiers at Westminster. So you could say there was kind of a, a divide, right, of, of almost a co-rulership, again, really, between the military leadership of Harold Godwinson and the civil authority of Edward. And some other Godwinson brothers also became significant potentates as well, but were not as effective or admired as Harold. The important one to know at this point is Tostig. So a younger brother of Harold, Tostig Godwinson, was the Earl of Northumbria, where he was known to rule very harshly and to levy very high burdensome taxes on the people of Northumbria. So after sort of making peace, in a way, with the Godwinsons, Edward continued to rule through the 1050s and into the 1060s, and he carried out effective civil reforms and reorganization. There was, as I said, a kind of military-civil division in duties, and he moved the main royal power center away from the traditional capital at Winchester to the new complex at Westminster, largely in order to take advantage of the growing and prospering commercial capital at London. And while all of these reforms were effective and successful and bolstered his power, they also made England even more appealing and desirable. And this could come into play if Edward didn't have a successor, and there was again uncertainty about who would replace him. So in the 1060s, a new succession crisis arose because Edward and Edith had produced no children and they were getting older. Now, Edward has been portrayed by many chroniclers and hagiographers as extremely pious and private, living a kind of retired, almost monastic life within Westminster. And the implication is that hence he did not have sex with his wife, Edith. So it was a kind of way to spin his lack of children in a positive light. And it may be true that he did become increasingly withdrawn into spiritual life, life of prayer, which is not unusual for people in the Middle Ages as they got older. But for one thing, this left the Godwins even more fully in charge of the country. And Without children, of course, this meant there was no clear way to fuse the houses of Wessex and Godwin. 
and hence the Godwin sons would have more motive to try to sideline Edward or corner the, the succession to the throne when Edward eventually died. But also, this could mean the kingdom became more and more appealing to foreigners as well, because there was still, as we'll look at, there was still ambiguity about who else might be able to make a claim for the English throne. And as the country became more effectively centralized and more administered from this power center at Westminster, that meant that it was more feasible for someone to come in and take control of the whole country in one fell swoop, right? It's easier to seize control of a centralized country than a decentralized one. So England was becoming kind of a sitting duck, you could say. And as this succession crisis develops, you can imagine the Godwinsons certainly have their eye on the throne. Probably also William of Normandy was hoping to be named openly as Edward's successor, And it seems in 1064, some sort of incident happened, which is possibly important, but very mysterious. So in 1064, Harold Godwinson, the leader of this family, the Earl of Wessex, this sort of military ruler of England, he sailed to France and he ended up getting accidentally shipwrecked in the wrong town. And when there, he is taken sort of hostage, which was also a common practice in the Middle Ages. Some unknown warlord shows up in your country. You have to kind of take them prisoner to manage the situation. So he's taken hostage. And it seems, according to Norman sources, that William of Normandy intervened and made sure that Harold was freed. But of course, once they do so, they then, the Normans, just take him hostage and take him to Normandy. And some sort of interaction or negotiation happened at this point in Normandy. We don't know exactly what happened or what was said, but Normans would later claim that Harold swore some sort of oath on a set of holy relics, right? which was the way of making the most serious possible oath or promise at this time. He swore some kind of oath on sets of holy relics. Maybe he swore to support William's claim to be successor to the throne when Edward died. If this is true, it may have just been something Edward was coerced into in order to be freed or in order to free other English hostages in Normandy, if it happened at all. But this scene is one of the scenes of him taking the oath on relics. This is one of the scenes recorded in the Bayeux Tapestry, which is a famous piece of Norman propaganda produced later that told the Normans' side of the story. So this incident may have happened. We can't know for sure. But Harold Godwinson was able to return to England, continue to manage affairs, and then Edward fell ill on Christmas, December 1065. And it seems he fell into some sort of catatonic state. He was non-communicative, could not speak for several days. And he eventually died on January 5th, the second to last day of Christmas, 1066. Supposedly, according to Anglo-Saxon sources, supposedly just before he died, Edward was able to rouse himself and turned to Harold Godwinson to ask him to protect the kingdom and the queen, meaning Edith, who was Harold's sister. 
And Harold used this story to argue that he should be the successor to the throne. But, of course, there are several problems with this story as well. For one thing, it's ambiguous. Even if Edward did say this, it doesn't explicitly say that Harold should be king. It just asks him to protect the kingdom, which he basically already been doing anyway, unofficially. So it's not, it's not totally clear. It's ambiguous. It cannot be confirmed independently. There were no neutral or opposing parties present at Edward's dying bedside to verify he really said this. And even if he did say it, and even if he meant it as you should be my successor, even still, it was not binding. Because, as we said, kings could not dictate who succeeded them. It was up to the Witten to decide. So Harold Godwinson immediately puts himself forward as the prohibitive uh, candidate to be the successor. But there are at least two other possibilities clearly on the table. One of them is someone I have not mentioned so far, and that was Edward's great-nephew, Edgar. And Edgar was descended by another line from Ethelred the Unready. So he was from the House of Wessex by a different line, and he was the closest living blood relative to Edward. So if that was your main criterion, Edgar was the clear next choice. But it seems Edgar was only a teenager. He was very young, and he had not really made much of an impression on anybody. He, he had had an opportunity through these years to step forward and take up duties at the royal court and sort of prove himself in the way that other successors had done before. But he just didn't do that, and he had almost no supporters at Westminster. The other obvious possibility we've already talked about was William of Normandy, who was a cousin once removed of Edward through Edward's mother, Emma, and who was, unlike Edgar, who was a known, effective ruler and commander and a man of mature age. It seems by this time he was in his late 30s. So these possibilities were probably in the air when the Witten met, but they very quickly chose Harold. So regardless of the validity of Edward's supposed deathbed pronouncement, it's clear that Harold just had the most power and supporters within the court at Westminster. He was also an Anglo-Saxon, which the Anglo-Saxon party preferred, and he was a brother-in-law of the king who had just died. So although he was not a blood relative, he had some kind of family relation, and ultimately these factors prevailed. And Edward was laid to rest in a beautiful prepared tomb in Westminster Abbey, right there in that Benedictine complex that he had built. And immediately, later that day, Harold was formally crowned in a ceremony right on top of that tomb. So it's clear that this ritual was trying to cement the notion of a direct link from Edward to Harold, right? Paving over these problems and questions about not being a blood relative, other claimants being on the table. They clearly want to rush this process and dispel all doubt that Harold is the new king. Now, 
News of events like this would, of course, take several days to travel just around Britain and maybe even longer to cross the sea to other countries like France. And it seems that a few days later, when William of Normandy was informed of what had happened, that Edward had died and Harold had been crowned king, William reportedly flew into an emotional rage. And this is something William was known to do. He was emotional and wrathful. And after composing himself, he then immediately threw himself into making plans for an invasion of England. He very quickly decamped his court from the Norman capital at Rouen to the town of Caen, closer to the coast. And from the castle at Caen, he managed negotiations, gathered supporters, secured the support of the nobles and the knights of Normandy, who were known as formidable fighters in Europe. And he gathered at the small coastal port of Dives, he gathered a fleet of over 700 vessels, you know, an amazing, exceptional uh, feat for this time. And this fleet of 700 plus vessels would be able to carry an army of about 14,000 men and 3,000 horses. And the Normans were known from great horsemanship. They had taken up this art. They had acquired good breeds of horses from the Eastern Mediterranean and the Middle East in a way that had not happened in England, where basically all fighting was still done on foot. There was, however, the problem of legitimacy. How could William claim this throne when Harold had already been proclaimed by the Witten and crowned in a church? in the eyes of God. But William was able to open up communications with the papacy, something that he he could do because he was on the continent and he was known as a very pious Christian. And he persuaded the Pope to give him a formal church blessing of his mission and even to give him a papal banner to carry into battle. And it seems that his main basis for persuading the Pope was Harold's supposed oath on holy relics. If the Pope didn't hold Harold to that oath, it would undermine the whole idea that holy relics have this kind of supreme moral power. While William is undertaking to assemble this tremendous fleet and army in the early spring of 1066, Harold, of course, knows, at least vaguely, that this is going on. And he likewise prepares. He gathers together his housecarls, which is the Anglo-Saxon word for sort of sworn warriors who can be gathered together to protect the monarch. And he makes plans for a possible attack. In May 1066, landings and attacks did begin on the Isle of Wight, an island on the southern coast of England. Towns were ransacked, many people, including civilians, were killed or taken prisoner, and then the attacks spread eastward across the southern coast of England. But this was not the Norman invasion. Rather, William was still in process of getting prepared So what was happening here? Well, apparently it was just raiding parties of fighters and mercenaries under the command of Tostig. So remember, Tostig is Harold Godwinson's younger brother, who had been Earl of Northumbria. What is going on? How did this happen? Well, Tostig, as I said, had been ruling as Earl of Northumbria, and he was known as repressive and charged high taxes. 
In the fall of 1065, when Edward is still alive, the populace in Northumbria revolted, and the commoners drove him out and invited a replacement to come take his place as earl. Now, Harold, as the sort of head of security for the kingdom, he intervenes. He's acting as sort of the military arm of the crown, and he refused to support Tostig, which many people might have expected him to do, to back up the authority of this earl, who was also his brother. But Harold judges that suppressing this revolt might lead to civil war. The kingdom might split into northern and southern factions. People might rally around these rebels. So instead, Harold agrees to most of the demands of the northern rebels, and he exiles Tostig from England. Tostig went abroad to Flanders. He was married. His wife Judith was Flemish, so he has relations and allies in Flanders. So he goes to Flanders, and he gathers some supporters and some paid mercenaries and just, you know, general kind of thugs. And he plots revenge against his brother, Harold Godwinson, who in the meantime becomes king of England. So when Harold takes the throne, Tostig sees an opportunity now to rally Harold's enemies. He, at one point, travels to Normandy. Flanders is right next door to Normandy. And we know he goes to Normandy, and he has some sort of conversation or communication with William of Normandy. But we don't know exactly what went on. We don't know if maybe Tostig offered an alliance. We don't know if maybe Tostig proposed that he could make an initial attack to sort of test the defenses and pave the way for William. Maybe, maybe not. But whatever happens, Tostig goes back to Flanders and then launches his fleet and begins attacking and raiding along the English coast across the channel. So once this happens, Harold then has to spring into action, and he uses the levy system called the Feard to gather up men for a larger infantry force. So beyond just this core of housecarls, he uses this Feard system where manors and villages and hundreds, these small wards called hundreds, each have to contribute at least one man to this temporary fighting force. So Harold is able to gather an enormous army and a large naval force, and they repel Tostig's attacks. And Tostig flees northward up around the coast of England, and eventually he, he lands, he tries to land in Northumbria and gather his allies and supporters there and start a kind of counterattack. But it doesn't work because you know, he was unpopular and had been kicked out as Earl of Northumbria. So this goes nowhere. And in the summer of 1066, he continues up and takes refuge in Scotland, where he has an alliance with King Malcolm of Scotland. So after this kind of initial foray by Tostig, Harold now has a large army, which he maintains, which he maintains in the south of England for several months, expecting a likely Norman invasion. And it's expected that this invasion will happen in the summer. The summer is really the only time of year when the weather is clear enough or dry enough to sail across the channel and make a landing. It's autumn and winter. It's just too wet, too stormy. So Harold has his army and he's trying to keep them fed and keep them disciplined and ready for a possible Norman invasion through the summer months. 
But during this time, William is detained, waiting in Normandy because of unfavorable winds. It seems that there was a weather system in Europe at this moment which was causing constant southward wind blowing from the channel onto Normandy. So it's really impossible for them to launch or get anywhere. And for William, this is agonizing. And remember, he's a very an emotional, uh, expressive man. And observers could see that he was in turmoil and agony as the summer passed by and day by day this window of opportunity to invade narrowed. The situation dragged on through August with no change in the wind. And Harold, meanwhile, is waiting on the Isle of Wight, seeing no sign of an invasion. And finally, running out of food, and with the harvest time coming, this moment when all hands are needed to go into the fields and harvest the food, Harold finally gives in and disbands the army on September 8th. And he was probably hoping that with the summer now ending, no invasion was going to come for the year. However... Just three days later, on September 11th, Harold received the news of an enormous invasionary force landing. And it was landing in Northumbria, and it was carrying thousands of Norwegians. Hold on, record scratch. What's going on here? Well, it seems that what happened is that Tostig, while he was in Scotland, opened communications and made an alliance with Harold Hardrada, the king of Norway. So we have another Harold with a different title, Hardrada, meaning sort of hard ruler, in Norway. And Harold Hardrada at this point thinks that he can make a plausible claim to be king of England. Why would he think this? Well, apparently 30 years earlier, if you think back when Hardicanute was the claimant to the English throne. He was tied down in fighting in Denmark and Norway, and he had had to eventually give up his claim on Norway, but he made a conditional negotiated agreement with the Norwegian chieftain Magnus. And in this agreement, Hardicanute recognized Magnus as king of Norway, and he agreed that if either ruler... Hardicanute or Magnus died with no heir, then the other one should inherit their lands. So it sort of kept open the possibility that these domains, this whole North Sea empire, might eventually be reassembled if one or the other ruler failed to produce a successor. Now, decades later, Magnus's son, Harald Hardrada, had taken up rulership in Norway. And once Edward died, he thinks then that the conditions hold. Because Edward died without an heir or successor, he thinks that the agreement therefore applies again. And hence, he is entitled to Edward's domains. Now, Harold Hardrada is a whole complex figure unto himself who had lived a very rich and complicated life before this. He was a very experienced warrior. Before he took up the throne of Norway, he had fought as a mercenary for the Byzantines in Constantinople and also for the Kiev Rus, this Viking-founded Norse kingdom in Eastern Europe, in what's now Ukraine. He had married a Russian wife. 
And then after coming to the Norwegian throne, he sort of had very little to do. There wasn't that much going on in Norway at the time compared to all of this dramatic action he'd been involved in. So he apparently accepted Tostig's proposition to join together and use their combined support to attack northern England, particularly Northumbria, which seemed to be a target that would make sense because Tostig had previously been Earl of Northumbria, he still had some support and connections there, and it was a place with many people of Norse descent. It had been conquered and colonized by the Vikings, and so there maybe was some affinity there between the largely Norse-descended people and Norway. So in August, Harald Hardrada gathered together a large fleet of about 300 ships, crossed over to the Shetlands and then the Orkney Islands, landed for a time in Scotland, reconnoitered with Tostig and his supporters, and prepared to launch a joint invasion. And in September, they began landing and attacking in small groups along the River Humber the river that goes up uh, along, that separates Northumbria from the rest of England. On September 20th, they engaged in a battle and defeated the earls of Northumbria and Mercia, which allowed them to capture the city of York. And that was the old kind of traditional northern power center. It had once been the Norse capital of England, and so it's now under the control of this Norwegian invasionary force. So when Harold Godwinson finds out about this invasion, he has to quickly reassemble his forces, whatever group he could manage to get together at this point, and hurry northward several hundred miles to strike back quickly against this Norwegian invasion. So while Harold is rushing northward, William learns of the vulnerability, the fact that now southern England is unprotected. And William is simply no longer willing to to wait for weather, and he launches his fleet despite bad and contrary winds. This was a big mistake. He lost several ships and hundreds of men. It's a complete disaster, and the fleet ultimately has to turn back and take refuge at a French port called Saint-Valéry, where they stay then for several weeks. And during this time stuck at Saint-Valéry, William reportedly becomes despondent. He spends much of his time in prayer. He is worried that God is punishing him for some reason. There are descriptions of him spending his time simply watching the weather vane of the church and weeping, waiting for the wind to shift. And also doubts and opposition begin to arise within his own camp, where some people think this is simply a fool's errand. So William orders saints' relics to be taken out of the churches and chapels and paraded around the street to pray for God's support and to try to restore some confidence in the mission. And this is basically the state of things through most of September. Meanwhile, In the north, on September 25th, Harald Hardrada and Tostig, the leaders of this Norwegian invasion, agree to meet with English representatives from the sort of Mercian and Northumbrian camp. They agree to meet with them in order to exchange prisoners from the battle. This seems like a reasonable idea, customary, 
And so they meet up at Stamford Bridge, a small bridge over a river five miles outside of York. They do not know that Harold Godwinson and his army are already there, lying in wait, having traveled with almost lightning speed northward to reach Yorkshire. Once the Norwegians come to Stamford Bridge, Harold Godwinson and his housecarls lead a surprise attack. They force their way across the bridge and attack head-on. And the Norsemen are unprepared, and in particular, they don't have, most of them do not have their suits of chainmail armor because they didn't expect a battle. So there is a rapid attack. Harold Hardrada is killed, and then reportedly Harold Godwinson kills his brother Tostig himself and cuts off his head. So the Norse are absolutely devastated. The survivors have to decamp from York and leave on 24 ships, which is remarkable because, remember, they had come over on a fleet of 300 ships. So it shows you how totally devastated this force was. And really, from that point onward, Norway is severely weakened. And in the following years, it would really fade away and lose its place as a major Scandinavian power. And this was a factor, too, in the end of the Viking Age, right? Norse expansionism declined rapidly after this devastating defeat at Stamford Bridge. So at this point, Harold Godwinson is looking pretty good as the sort of warrior protector of England. But two days later, just two days after the Battle of Stamford Bridge, on September 27th, the winds finally shifted on the English Channel. And as soon as this happened, the Normans celebrated, gathered up their arms and armor, and boarded the ships, and that very afternoon, they set sail onto the English Channel. They sailed through the night, and the following morning and midday, they landed at the small village of Pevensey on the shores of East Sussex, not far from London. The next day after that, they marched eastward and took possession of the town of Hastings, which was larger and better protected than the village of, of Pevensey. They encountered basically no opposition. Harold Godwinson and the English forces were all still all the way up at York, hundreds of miles away, and there is simply no player on the ground anywhere in southern England capable of putting up a resistance to this massive Norman invasionary force. Harold Godwinson learned of the Norman invasion by no later than October 1st, and he again rushed down with his forces to London, arriving in London on October 6th. And at this point, there was a sort of strategic crossroads. So Harold Godwinson could plausibly have just held London, the main center of wealth, trade, population, which was able to protect the royal court within its walls. They could have simply held on to London and waited for William either to try to attack this fortified city or waited for him to just run out of supplies, isolated in Hastings, and withdraw back to Normandy. So William knows this. He knows that in order to have a chance, he has to provoke Harold Godwinson out of London and draw him into a direct confrontation. 
And in order to do so, William sent out parties around East Sussex and Kent in the southeastern corner of England to attack and raid small villages. And they torched many uh, homes, farms, towns, killed many people. And as news of this came back to London, there was an intense debate as to what to do. So Harold Godwinson's forces by this time are depleted, and they are also very tired. They have rushed northward to protect the north against a massive Norwegian invasion and then rushed back south. They're quite worn out, and some people at the court, including members of the Godwinson family, want Harold to stay back. Or or if they make any move against William, they want to send out small detachments in a sort of guerrilla style to harass and weaken William in several waves before then launching the main army to attack them directly. But Harold Godwinson does not accept either of these ideas. He wants to attack William head-on himself. He believes it's his duty to protect the kingdom. It's an embarrassment. It's a dishonor to allow his own subjects to be killed and harassed by William, particularly in the southern coastal area, which was part of the traditional earldom of Wessex. And hence, because Harold had been Earl of Wessex before he became king, he had a special sort of duty and responsibility to those people in that territory, which is probably part of why William made sure that his invasionary force landed within the bounds of Wessex. It was a way to sort of send a direct insult to Harold. So Harold resolves that he must attack head-on himself and stop this Norman invasion. So on October 11th, the English forces under Harold left London, and they went down first to Rochester, down southeast of London. On the 13th of October, they set up camp at Senlac Hill, a high hill in a ridge in Sussex, not far from Hastings. And at this point, they're close enough to Hastings that they expect that the battle might be engaged at any moment, and they stay up all night, expecting a possible night surprise attack. But the next morning on October 14th, both armies decamped and set out on the road towards one another expecting to confront each other directly, and they meet up around 8 a.m. that morning. Now, we don't know exactly where they met up. It might have been basically right near Senlac Hill, or it might have been another hill farther down, closer to Hastings, or it might have been at a traditional hill that has been traditionally considered the battle site in what's now the town of Battle, a few miles north of Hastings. We don't know exactly, and there's never been any definite archaeological proof to pinpoint exactly where the battle happened. But it clearly was on a sloping hill that this road from Hastings to Rochester crossed. And Harold reportedly seized the high ground along the top of this slope, and his warriors formed a shield wall, which was a traditional Anglo-Saxon maneuver to create a tight shield-to-shield barrier, which would be extremely difficult to break or attack, especially if the attackers had to go up a slope. So William and the Normans assessed the situation, and they first sent volleys of arrows from their archers to try to soften and weaken 
the Anglo-Saxon line. Norman infantry then began to charge up the hill and repeatedly attack this Anglo-Saxon shield wall. After probably hours of fighting, when casualties and and fatigue are starting to set in, William then sends in the cavalry, which is a special tool that he has that the English do not. And after repeated waves of attack, the shield wall is still holding, and the Normans by afternoon are starting to get tired. And they are desperate to somehow break through this shield wall and end the stalemate. Now, at this point in the afternoon, it seems that a division of the Norman army, maybe one wing of the Norman infantry engaged in the battle, broke and ran away, down the hill and away from the battlefield. Why did they do this? Was it out of fear, despair, fatigue? Or was it maybe an intentional trick, a sort of cunning trap to bait the English into pursuing them and hence break their shield wall. Well, we don't know, but for whatever reason they did it, the English fell into the trap. They began to charge and pursue the Normans as they fled. And so now the battle is becoming mobile and moving down the hill and down the road. And at this point, a rumor spreads for a time among the Norman camp that William is dead. So there's fear and panic, at least for a moment, that the Normans are, are being routed. William, at this point, apparently took off his helmet and rode up and down through the Norman lines to show that he was alive and to rally his side to counterattack. So the Normans begin to turn around and turn on their English pursuers and simply cut them down. So now the shield wall that had been maintained for so many hours is broken. The battle becomes chaos, a sort of unpredictable melee, and particularly the Norman cavalry take advantage and are able to ride around, break through, surround uh, Anglo-Saxon fighters, and pick them off. Towards evening, it seems, the Normans were getting close enough up the hill to Harold, and one way or another, Harold Godwinson is killed. The early chronicles say that William sent a death squad of men with sort of battle axes and swords to find Harold Godwinson and stab him and behead him, and reportedly they then mutilated Harold's body, probably as an expression of this kind of personal vendetta and fury that William felt towards Harold. Later histories say something different. So later chronicles claim that Harold was hit from afar by an arrow in the eye, and this is what killed him. And once Harold died, this kind of allowed sort of the Norman flood to just overrun the Anglo-Saxon forces. So there are conflicting accounts. The earlier accounts don't say he was hit in the eye by an arrow. However, the Bayeux tapestry does show Harold with an arrow striking him in the eye. We don't know if that was in there originally, or maybe it was embroidered in later, once this story about the arrow in the eye kind of took off. So we can't say exactly what happened, but clearly Harold was killed in some way by the Norman forces. And at that point, the English break and flee. And as it gets into evening and it it becomes dark, the 
English forces simply melt away into the country. So William, at this point, having really crushed Harold's army and killed the king himself, William then waits at Hastings for several days, expecting for a party of emissaries to come to him and offer their submission and offer him the crown. But this did not happen. Rather, the English continue to resist. Two days after the battle, on October 16th, the English court proclaims Edgar as king. So remember Edgar, Edward's great-nephew, who was just a, a youth? Well, some of the English nobles, at least, rally together and want to now support Edgar as the new claimant and continue to resist the Normans. So William, again, of course, is furious, and he marches eastward with his army, takes possession of the town of Dover on October 21st, which is now a larger stronghold than Hastings. And then eight days later, on October 29th, he takes Canterbury, which is another major town and the main religious center of England. He then remains at Canterbury for about a month, and it seems that disease spread among his camps. Uh, William himself became sick, so they have to wait for several weeks at Canterbury, and then they advance. They go up to the Thames River, march westward along the Thames, then cross the Thames, and return eastward to approach London. And as they go, they are raiding, pillaging, trying to weaken resistance in anticipation of possibly having ultimately to besiege London. The city continues to hold out, but in mid-December, the English leaders come to the conclusion that this is futile, that there's no point in trying to withstand a siege. They're going to be overwhelmed by the Normans. And so the English leaders set up and meet with William and the Normans at the village of Berkhamstead, west of London. And Edgar personally makes a surrender to William. And about a week or so later, on December 25th, William is then formally crowned at Westminster Abbey. So the, the first two royal coronations ever to happen in Westminster were Harold Godwinson in January 1066, and then William, who is now called William the Conqueror, in December. There's surely a symbolic, intentional symbolic message to this of, you know, Harold being crowned on the last day of Christmas at the beginning of the year, and then William on the first day of Christmas at the end of the same year, and the notion of uh, a cycle ending and maybe sort of a mistaken year, a wrong year, being now corrected as the calendar returns back. So London and Westminster now accept William the Conqueror as the new ruler, but there was continued resistance mainly in the north of England over the next several years, there would be repeated rebellions and resistance in the north, which the Normans would repress very brutally. And the Normans have at this point defeated the English nobility at the Battle of Hastings, also Denmark and Scotland. All of these rival forces who are trying to undermine the Norman regime are all defeated. And the Normans then launch a campaign of fortification, building new fortresses and walls, including the Tower of London, to secure their rule over the country. And they replace most of the English nobility with Norman loyalists. So, and this, this wasn't even, in all cases, entirely intentional. 
The housecarls and most of the core leadership of the English nobility had been killed at the Battle of Hastings, and those who survived largely fled in shame. Many of them then fled the country, became exiles abroad, or were captured and killed by the Normans later, or they were simply stripped of their lands and titles and replaced by Normans. So a large chunk of the English nobility was swept away and replaced by Norman warriors and Norman knights. But again, probably not entirely, and it's easy to exaggerate how much English society and laws and customs changed. And the Norman population that came over was not all that big. It was really just a few thousand people. So if this is how it unfolded, then how important is this Norman conquest and why does it matter? Well, the full impact and significance of the Norman conquest can really only be grappled with by looking at counterfactuals and asking, what if things had turned out differently? What if there hadn't been any Norman conquest? What would England, what would Europe, what would the world look like? And that, of course, ultimately, it's impossible to know. It's too much, you know, chaos theory, butterfly flaps its wings in the jungle, etc. But there are certain things we can say. If Harold had won at the Battle of Hastings, then he would certainly be revered as one of the great warrior rulers of all time who had successfully beaten off enormous invasions from Norway and France within days of each other. It would have been an absolutely incredible feat, and he would be, he would be a hero compared to King Arthur. And he would not be remembered as simply the guy who got an arrow in his eye on the Bayeux Tapestry. It's reasonable to say that England would have remained more in the Scandinavian orbit. It would continue to be more connected in terms of people, trade, diplomacy to the Scandinavian powers, and it would not have been drawn in to the world of France and the European continent. And this is true even if just Harold had defeated William at the Battle of Hastings, as seemed quite possible right on up into the late afternoon. It seemed that he might simply hold off and exhaust the Norman forces. And that is let alone if Harold Hardrada had won up in the north, which Harold Godwinson and his supporters were able to prevent. What if the Norwegian invasion had been successful? Well, then probably still today we would think of England, or maybe all of Britain, as basically a Scandinavian Norse country, like Norway and Sweden and Iceland. Additionally to this, there's you can even go back to before, before William's invasion, before Harold Hardrada's invasion, back to the beginning of 1066, and posit another counterfactual that I have not seen discussed, which is, what if the Witten had never chosen Harold Godwinson in the first place? What if they had chosen to recognize William's claim? Or what if Harold had not contested it? What if Harold had adhered to these supposed oaths that he made to William to support William's claim? Would there then have been a peaceful transferal of the throne to William? And hence, no massive loss of English power at Hastings. If there had been no Battle of Hastings, then the 
English nobility would not have been decimated. There would not have been a massive replacement of Norman nobles and Norman administrators and churchmen into England. There might have been more of a negotiated settlement and much less social and political change that came with the Norman conquest. However, on the other side, maybe there would have been then more continuing feuding over the throne. And maybe the practice of primogeniture, of giving the throne automatically to the eldest male heir, maybe that practice never would have been brought into England with William the Conqueror, as we call him. And maybe these periodic disputes and feuds over which dynasty should have the throne might have continued on. And there might have been no transition then into the more comparatively more stable Plantagenet era. So these are all counterfactuals to, con- to consider and to compare against what actually happened. The way things really went, which is that William invaded and won a smashing military victory. So this conquest led to resolution. There was n- no longer any possibility of a real challenge to the power of William and his successors. The old dynasties, both of Wessex and the Danes, were totally swept aside. The Normans, as I said, brought in the law of primogeniture. Succession is predetermined. It's no longer up to this witten. It's automatic. And this led to hundreds of years with much fewer succession disputes. There was much less ambiguity over who should succeed to the throne, at least until the 1400s and Wars of the Roses. But the other side of that coin is that there were also more bad kings, kings who were mentally unfit, untrustworthy, did not have the confidence of the elites, rulers like Richard II and King John, whose reigns led to conflict and periods of chaos. So the trajectory, the history of England, the politics of England change completely. Some laws and policies also change. For instance, one legal change is that was the introduction of trial by combat. So previously in Anglo-Saxon England, if someone was accused of a crime, it would usually be resolved by a jury, a sort of set of local witnesses, maybe advised by a judge, would decide who was guilty or innocent. Or you could opt for a trial by ordeal, something like being dropped in water or walking over hot coals, doing some sort of extreme act to demonstrate your innocence. Well, with the Normans, it came in another option, trial by combat, where you could fight to show that God supported your claim to innocence. So there were some of these changes in laws and customs. Also, England, as I said, was drawn much closer to France. Much of the leadership class spoke French. It became much more involved in Western Europe. It got entangled in complicated disputes like the Hundred Years' War over who controlled France. With this new Norman elite that came in also came new knowledge and practices, such as the mastery of cavalry and horsemanship. England becomes a major chivalric power with a class of warriors on horseback, hence it becomes a significant force in the Crusades and other conflicts abroad. The Normans also bring in mastery of stonework. The Anglo-Saxons built in wood, uh, and they didn't even make much pottery. They basically were a woodworking society. The Normans bring in stonework, and there's a great wave of building of manor houses, castles, city walls, churches, cathedrals. And the new art forms like Romanesque architecture in England, they're often just called Norman, 
That's just a byword for Romanesque. Also, new literature, the introduction of chivalric romances in the French style, the introduction of rhyming poetry in the French style. And with this also comes a transformation of the language. What had been Old English or Anglo-Saxon evolves then pretty quickly into Middle English, this much more French-influenced style of English, which then is the basis for modern English. And all in all, England ends up becoming a major center of the High Middle Ages. It is not a peripheral North Sea kingdom drawn into the Scandinavian world. It is now a center of politics, military power, art, and culture, totally involved with the rest of the European continent. And so hence, what I think this demonstrates, if you look at the whole story, is that the characters of entire societies and entire eras can often depend on contingent events, unforeseen, unpredictable, even accidental events, and individual choices, which might come for really inscrutable reasons. Why did the winds shift on the English Channel on that particular day? If we think back to the weather situation, what if the winds had been favorable when William wanted them to be in the summer of 1066? Would he have invaded and run right into Harold's enormous force assembled on the Isle of Wight? And how could that war, that conflict, have turned out maybe completely differently? And yet because the winds were against him, he waited until after the Norwegian attack which weakened Harold's forces and carried them away far to the north, allowing them a free sort of red carpet to land and take Hastings. This is, this is the sort of event that can happen at these moments of uncertainty in history, where things that seem to be favoring one side actually ironically favor the opposite side. Hence, I think it's, this is why it's foolhardy, in my view, to try to cast history and the, the eras, the unfolding, the evolution of societies as if it's a predictable process following some scheme. Clearly, it's not if you pay attention to events like the, the tumult of 1066. So thank you so much for listening. And again, if you can help support this podcast, keep it coming, please go to my Patreon page, become a supporter at any level, and you'll hear all of my patron-only materials, including my next lecture on one of the great archaeological discoveries, the exact subject to be determined. Thank you.